Hello, hello. Welcome to the Henry George Program. I am Mark Molino, and I'm joined by co-host Jacob Swartz-Lucas, representing EarthSharing.org and the Robert Schalkbeck Foundation. This is a program dedicated to finding practical answers to the housing crisis, economic volatility, inequality, and environmental degradation here in the Bay Area and beyond. More specifically, we compare and contrast the ideas of the 19th century economist Henry George with that of both historical and contemporary thinkers. We address issues ranging from artificial intelligence, automation, and universal basic income to city planning and land value tax, a concept popularized by George. Hello, Jake. Hey, thanks for having Steve and me on. Yeah. Today on the show, Steve Barton is the co-chair of the Committee for Safe and Affordable Homes established to support passage of a windfall profits tax on residential landlords, which was passed in the November 2016 ballot in Berkeley, California. He previously served as Berkeley's housing director and deputy director of the Berkeley Rent Stabilization Program. His work on affordable housing received a National Planning Award from the American Planning Association and Affordable Housing Leadership Award from the Nonprofit Housing Association of Northern California. Barton also serves on the board of the Bay Area Community Land Trust, which specializes in the development of limited equity housing cooperatives and is active in the East Bay Housing Organizations and Democratic Socialists of America. He is the author of numerous articles on housing policy and economics, as well as the history of the Georgist and Socialist movements, and has a PhD in city and regional planning from the University of California, Berkeley. That's a mouthful. Welcome, Stephen. Glad to be on the show. So yeah, let's let's get to the to the thing everyone's excited to talk about uh, the uh, piece of legislation that that passed last November. Uh, yeah, why don't you just introduce it for people who may not be familiar with this uh, this measure? Sure, and knowing that there will be uh, with some listeners who are not uh, residents of California or may not be aware of uh, exactly how tax measures work in California, I should note that. In order for a local government in California to uh, establish a new tax or raise an existing tax, it has to go to a vote of the people. The city council does not have that power by itself. So, um, in and I might note, it has to go to a vote of the people at the same time that members of the city council or board of supervisors are up for election or re-election. So in November of last year, the city councils of Berkeley and East Palo Alto proposed to the voters that they, that they increase the tax on the residential landlords. Residential landlords in the San Francisco Bay Area are reaping tremendous windfall profits from rising rents, and the result is a massive transfer of wealth from tenants to real estate investors. So the idea was recapture some of this windfall and put the money to use um, to create permanently affordable housing for the low-income tenants who are hardest hit by all this and to help prevent homelessness. The, The tax measures in Berkeley's case proposed to raise the tax by 1.8% of the gross rent, which is a good deal less than probably the last rent increase. The East Palo Alto measure raised it by 1.4% of the gross rent. So in Berkeley, this should bring in about $4 million a year that will go into the city's housing trust fund. Um, The measures were designed as majority vote taxes, which means that the city council has discretion over how to spend them with a moral obligation that they be spent for the affordable housing purposes. And actually, in, in both cases, the measures passed with 75% of the vote in Berkeley and 78% of the vote in East Palo Alto. So it's really... The, the first time that anybody has gone directly to the rising rents that are the manifestation of the area's rental housing crisis and uh, re- aimed to recapture some of those rents and put them back into mitigating the uh, really the, the harm that's caused to low-income tenants from those rising rents. 
Yeah, this it squares a certain circle we've seen with, uh, you know, who is the normal enemy here? We see a lot of villain, you know, uh, people making the developers the villains, or people making the new people moving into town the villains. Historically, people have been much more ready to say, you know, what are landlords doing with this? They, they're getting a lot of profits, and they didn't really do a whole lot to deserve it. Uh, so in, 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 in general, what do you think people respond to the fairness of, uh, of raising the uh, tax on a, a profit for landlords? Um, I think that that's exactly what they were responding to. You know, the, on the landlord side, you, what they would say and did say repeatedly was, um, you know, the housing crisis is a problem for the whole community, and the whole community should pay for it. But the whole community is not profiting from that housing crisis. It is specifically the landlords who are profiting from it. Sort of like saying all lives matter. Well, I, I think in the in the case of the you know the the housing crisis in the Bay Area and the, the rising rents, um, it, it's in somewhat an an opposite case in that um, the entire community is making the Bay Area a good place to live. I mean, we have a wonderful climate and physical setting that was created by God or the universe, depending on your spiritual beliefs. We have a really wonderful, diverse, and creative culture, that combination, and we have generally pretty good local government services. We keep the transportation and schools going and provide public safety. And then we have businesses that thrive off of that diverse and creative culture and happen to be creating quite an economic boom in the area. So the entire community is making this a really um, great, attractive place to live. And um, the result is you get increasing demand for moving into the area that's increasing far faster than the housing supply can possibly increase. And the result then is that landlords are able, a small sector of the community, those people who own real estate, are particularly able to take the value that the whole community has created and charge higher rents. Yeah, so here's here's a quote, uh, and I'll, I'll reveal the, the quote uh who spoke it later, uh, as the community grows, site values and land values increase. This increase in site values is not made by the industry, skill, labor, or forethought of any individual. It is an increase in the value arising out of the association or coming together of men. That may sound like a Henry George quote. It's actually by J. Stitt Wilson, uh, Jackson Stitt Wilson, that is, uh, who's uh, a, a part of Berkeley history, and uh, I, I really, uh, really interesting figure. And I know, uh, yeah, you, you, I, I believe you're working on a biography of uh, of Mr. Wilson. Yes, that's right. Um, it, it's one of those. Uh, I find him a, a fascinating man. He uh, was mayor of Berkeley for only two years. He also um, worked in the early 1900s in. Uh, 1912 and 1914, he worked on uh, statewide initiative campaigns to give local governments the option to um, tax land values rather than just the current property tax structure, which taxes land and buildings, or to do some combination of of the two. But the basic idea was to increase the level of tax on land values and tax that community created value. One of the things that's interesting about J. Stitt Wilson is that he was a socialist and a Georgist at the same time. And since Henry George, uh, during the latter part of his career, was very hostile towards socialists, um, that's considered an, that's a, an interesting combination. And I think that it goes back to the fact that um, this society really doesn't recognize the way an enormous part of the economic value that we create as a society is indeed the result of the cooperative social workings 
of the society and is not based on just uh, what any particular individual did. And then <clears throat> that is that sort of nugget of understanding that a lot of value is socially created rather than just individually created is something that's absolutely rejected by most of the, um, you know, by the current sort of focus on free market economics and the assumption that you know, whatever someone makes, no matter how many billions of dollars they have, that somehow they earned it. Um, well, as I'd say, historically, it has not really been I guess uh, very difficult to find, you know, a socialist movement and a Georgist movement com- compatible. They they worked. Uh, the, the 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 progressive movement, after all, drew a lot of strength from Georgism. Uh, I, I'm reminded of a of a quote by George. I'm, not, I'm just paraphrasing, of just saying that he is you know happy to, you know, march with the socialists. He thinks he can stop when they reach the ocean, uh, and he thinks they believe they have to walk all the way to. Uh, to China, he didn't think it was. <laughs> he, he, didn't, he didn't think it was possible, and he thought that getting the ocean was was good enough. Uh, but he felt that he was happy to march uh, for 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 part of the way with them. Certainly. Oh well, that's that's interesting. I should hunt up the the quote because actually, um, Stitt Wilson said something to the uh, at, at a Georgist uh, dinner w- w- one year. Um, that was very similar, uh, um, coming from the opposite direction, basically saying that he, he was happy to march with the Georgists until they arrived at, at that particular destination, and then he would continue on. <laughs> I guess there's, there's uh, two ways to look at it in that sense. But, uh, yeah, I think everyone has to look at what, what natural allies are and, and not worry about sectarian uh, squabbling if we all have a similar kind of goal in mind. And the goal here is just basically to make housing affordable and fair to all. Uh, right now in Berkeley, uh, th- things are pretty bad. I mean, if you just want to describe to people not familiar with it, well, how can you? Well, what are the worst things about the current housing situation in Berkeley today? Yes. Well, let me start uh, by stepping back and talk, say what the worst thing about the housing crisis in the overall San Francisco Bay Area is. And that is that literally tens of thousands of people have been forced out of their homes and forced to move away from their friends and family, the, their, their jobs, and out into um, outlying areas where there are lower rents. So there's been massive disruption and displacement of people's lives. Now, in a number of cities, um, Berkeley, San Francisco, East Palo Alto, um, to some extent Oakland, um, where there are rent stabilization systems in very, with varying degrees of strength, at least most of that displacement has been prevented. So... In Berkeley, you have um, several thousand low-income tenants who have been in their units for a long time who now have rents that, given that over the last five years, rents have, market rents have gone up tremendously, anywhere from 50% to, uh, and more. Um, you now have tenants in place whose rents are half of what the current market level is, so that if they had to move, there's no way that they could afford a place to live. And they're basically holding on for dear life. And we know from surveys that a high percentage of those people are either elderly or disabled, as well as being low income. So um, one of the, you know, one of the things that's a serious issue in Berkeley is simply that even though people are protected, there's a, a fear level that if something were to happen, if they were to um, miss a month's rent and not, uh, you know, <clears throat> and give the landlord um, a good reason for evicting them, 
that it could completely destroy their current lives. Um, this is one of the reasons why we passed the uh, <clears throat> the tax measure, which was in Berkeley was <clears throat> called Measure U1, um, <clears throat> and what because part of the money will go to create a, an emergency assistance fund that will provide people with one-time assistance if there's some crisis in their life where, for example, somebody stole their paycheck um, or they, they uh, lost their job and it took them a couple months to find a new one and they didn't have enough savings to cover the rent and didn't have enough in the way of support from family or friends to cover the rent. So we're going to create an emergency fund to help people who run into one-time problems. The other thing that's happening, of course, is that there's quite a, uh, you know, every time uh, a unit does turn over, because people do need to, to move, and for that matter, we have a, a large student population in the areas right next to the university that tends to move every couple of years, the result is that rents there have skyrocketed. So it's become much harder for uh, basically for people from low-income families to afford to uh, attend UC Berkeley. And it, it's really a shame to lose that kind of an opportunity. The <clears throat> UC Berkeley actually has affiliated a large uh, student cooperative that houses uh, about 1,200 students and has um, <clears throat> very low rent and meal costs because the, um, it's a limited equity cooperative. Most of the buildings were paid off long ago. And um, <clears throat> again, one of the prospective uses for the funds from our Measure U1, it will be to um, help that student cooperative expand, provide some subsidy so that they can house more low-income students. And, you know, and it, it just continues on and on. I mean, Berkeley is a city that's known for um, protecting the rights of the disabled. In fact, the citizens of Berkeley um, have even taxed themselves through a parcel tax, a, a, a uh, payment small payment of about $25 a year made by uh, every real estate parcel in, in Berkeley, mostly homeowners, and to provide emergency services to people with disabilities, especially, you know, for example, someone's motorized wheelchair breaks down and they can't get to the doctor without, without it, that they'll um, you know, there's a service that will come in and then help them. So it, the, the city led the way in providing curb cuts for disability access. So here's a city with um, actually a somewhat disproportionate number of disabled people who moved there because um, it was a much more friendly city for disabled people to live in. And... Now th those who are there are hanging on for dear life, and um, it's much harder for people with disabilities who are not also working as lawyers or <laughs> have a tech job or something like that to be able to afford, afford to move into Berkeley. The diversity of the community yeah. is, I think, uh, starting to diminish somewhat. Can you tell us how, because I, I can definitely see how rent control would allow low-income students and disabled people to stay in the area, but maybe you could describe for our listeners how a tax on the increasing value of land would allow handicapped people to come into the area and enjoy um, the handicapped amenities that Berkeley offers, as well as you know, some of these low-income students that have this opportunity to go to such a good university but, you know, wouldn't otherwise allowed to be able to move to the area because of the rent. Sure. And and I can see that one thing I, I left out that some of your listeners would need to know to understand what I just said is that in California, um, <clears throat> when a city has rent control, 
when the when the tenant moves out, the unit is decontrolled and the landlord gets to charge whatever the market will bear. The unit is then recontrolled starting at that new rent, but rent control does not permanently hold the rents down. It does it only to protect the tenant who's currently in place. Basically, the extra rents that landlords are are collecting are um, paid for the value of the location, for the, in effect, land value. You know, it's not that they've improved the buildings so much that they're worth twice as much as they used to be. It's that um, the demand for locations in places like Berkeley has gone up tremendously. And um, as we discussed earlier, the value of the location is a creation of the community, not of the individual landlord. So what we're trying to do with the um, Measure U1 is um, tax some of that increased value of the location, um, and it would be great if we could actually tax more, but we had what we felt was a prudent start because it had never been done before. And then the idea is to take that money and buy sites for development by nonprofit organizations and land trusts, and also um, try and buy some existing buildings and basically remove them from the market so that they would then be rented out on the basis of need rather than on the basis of who, who can pay the most. And um, by removing the land from, from the market, it then makes it possible to, uh, um, <clears throat> to rent them or, in the case of a co-op, have sort of monthly maintenance fees that are very affordable, but only if you buy out the current high cost of the land, that, um, which is the cost of the property on, on the current market. And a question people have to ask is, why is the land so expensive? And I think a big reason is because if you can grab it, you don't get taxed on it, and you can make a lot of profit that way. And uh, I mean, sell it for more. Yes, you can. You, you can. Uh, it's and people. I, I guess when you talk about the how successful this was, I'm looking at the uh, the measure in front of me uh, and what it looked like to voters. There's a nice argument in favor of it. It has a bunch of different council members. No argument was submitted against it. Uh, was there much of a backlash at all, or was this smooth sailing all the way along? Oh um, no. Um, it, we spent seventy-five thousand uh, dollars in on mailings in support of the campaign. The opposition spent nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars, nearly a million dollars in Yikes. opposition. The fact that there was no argument submitted against it um, was because the staff person of the landlord organization um, made a mistake as to what day it was due, and. Um, That's a nice break. And was late in delivering it. Was this Krista Goldbranson, if I'm pronouncing That's her correct. Name, or is it? Okay. There's, yeah. a, there's a fun quote by her I'm seeing here just saying that uh, she thinks the idea that landlords are profiting from the social product of, of you know, privatized social goods, she considers that extreme and something that Berkeley residents wouldn't agree with, the general concept that they're profiting off of uh, – you know, the common good. I mean, how do you agree? Do you think most people are pro-landlord? Do you think people tend to think that landlords, you know, aren't, aren't really contributing to uh, to Berkeley? Well, I, I think we, we can't, um, for some purposes, we can treat landlords as a group, but it's tricky to do that. I mean, there are a lot of small landlords in Berkeley, um, many of whom uh, live in a, a duplex or triplex or a four-unit property and then rent out the other units. And um, people, you know, if, if someone's a retired teacher and they bought some rental property and they're, you know, and they're taking care of it and managing it as the, the source of their retirement income, then people in Berkeley respect that. On the other hand, um, there's also, uh, you know, there's one family in Berkeley that owns a thousand units, um, oh. and they're 
there are other and even for the even for the smaller landlords people in berkeley recognize that um you know they are getting windfall increases um berkeley's a community that has a lot of people particularly homeowners but also including renters who have been around for a long time and realize that the kinds of rents that people are currently paying are absolutely not normal. It's almost as though you really should have two different terms for it. You have, you know, a landlord, part of a job of overall is property management, and that's an honest living, you know, managing properties, taking care of stuff. But, you know, you can see what people are doing. Many people, when they have money to invest, they buy up properties and they pay someone else to do property management, and they still get a bulk of the return. And you look at what are they doing? They're not actually doing anything except throwing money at a, at a piece of land, which is not, it's hard to say that's an honest living. Yes, uh, a friend of mine, Nico Calavita, is a retired uh, professor of city planning at San Diego State University. And he, he told me that uh, one day he was asking uh, people in his class what they thought of the idea of uh, land value recapture and one half the class really liked it, and the other half the class uh, had the attitude that, um, you know, if somebody's smart enough to buy up a property that uh, where they then extend the transportation system, extend a streetcar line, and make it more valuable, that that's your smarts as an investor, and um, and therefore it should be your money. And then he also asked. Um, well, where, uh, what's your, what are your majors? <laughs> the half the class that agreed with uh, land value recapture uh, were in the planning program, and the other half of the class that believed the investor should get should get the money were in the real estate program. That's funny. The real estate industry loves uh, profits from increasing land values, you know, because. They don't have to do anything for for them, um, you know. It, cosmetic improvements, some fresh paint, some maybe some improved, uh, you know, new uh, countertops, so that the place looks shinier, <laughs> and then you get to raise the rent tremendously as long as there's that increased demand for the location behind it. Whereas, to actually um, build buildings and, uh, um, you know, and, and thoroughly upgrade a whole building is very, is very expensive. And um, the return that you get is, is far more ordinary. So the, you know, the, the real driving um, interest of the real estate industry is always um, making something into the hot new neighborhood so that people will pay a whole lot more money for that location, for example, um, <clears throat> precisely because it generates these windfall profits for very little investment. Well, and you talk about, I think, an important thing to mention is, you know, if the smart guy is going to invest in it, I mean, I I could be smart and invest in stuff. I don't have a spare million dollars laying around. So it's smart and, <laughs> and rich is an important thing there. Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing that I noticed about the proposal was that you explain the fact that there'll be more homes because you'll take the tax revenue and build more of this nonprofit uh, low-income housing. But I'm hoping to discuss a little bit the supply-side effects of the tax itself separate from using the revenue for housing, right? Because is it not true that taxing land values uh, provides an incentive among the landlord to actually, uh, among private landlords, to actually develop more units themselves. So uh, that is also going to tend to have the effect of increasing the supply of housing and thus, you know, reducing or retarding the the increase in the in the in the price of of renting space in Berkeley and and other areas where this is implemented. Uh, how, how would you respond to that? Well, unfortunately, this tax is only on properties that are already developed and being rented out. Um, I really earnestly hope that California will pass 
at some point in the near future an amendment to uh, proposi- the Proposition 13 property tax limitations for um, <clears throat> property that isn't owner-occupied, what's called uh, split roll, um, which would tax commercial property. Because if you look around the Bay Area, there's actually a lot of vacant or very underutilized property. And it's very easy for an investor to just sit on underused property for a long time because the taxes are uh, are low. It gets valued at, oh, well, it just has a gas station there or it's just a vacant lot. And then, of course, under Proposition 13 with its rules that um, the tax can't increase by more than 2% a year until it's sold, um, the owner gets the benefit of just being able to sit there paying minimal taxes while holding, holding, basically holding land off the market that could be developed for more housing. So it's not like when you buy stocks, for example, and you're helping to send signals out into the market about what a company may be worth. You're not actually doing harm by buying stocks. I mean, you, you could make certain arguments for, um, you know, sort of activist type investing, but when you own uh, land and you and you don't do anything with it, or you do less than you could do in terms of providing housing, you're actually you're doing harm to the community. So the tax itself uh, actually has positive implications. Everyone thinks of taxes as just this necessary thing that we 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 hate to deal with. But this is a rare kind of tax where the tax itself actually has positive effects, similar to say. You know, taxing pollution, we get less pollution. Um, taxing land actually helps drive more housing onto the market, which would tend to benefit everybody. That's right. And, you know, I mean, Proposition 13, which uh, limits property taxes in California, was sold as something to protect homeowners from being driven out of their homes by rising taxes. But, of course, it actually applies to all property in California, and it's almost the direct anti-Henry George ta- uh, tax limitation measure. It, it, it's just absolutely designed to protect windfall profits from rising land values. How often do you do you deal with people who are going to try, you know, try to attack rent controls with uh, econ 101 arguments? They say, "Oh, you are, you're, you know, when you control rents, you're restricting supply, blah blah blah," and you know that's why it's more efficient not to have that. Uh, I mean, I just think it's interesting that a lot of people will say Costa Hawkins is good, rent control is bad uh, for those reasons. But yeah, Prop 13 gives us rent control for landowners, and and you don't see those same people make those make make those objections. That's a great way of phrasing it. Yeah, I mean, how often do you deal with uh yeah with people who kind of say, oh, let's look at economic efficiency? Is that something people look at much? Well, you know, the uh, rent control is currently a hotly contested issue in in the bay area in the last uh last november's election there were uh five cities had proposals for at least the allowable rent stabilization with vacancy decontrol on the ballot and it passed in two of those cities um interestingly enough um rents are skyrocketing in the state of oregon especially uh western Oregon, in the Portland area, in the Salem area. Um, And Oregon years ago passed a ban on local rent controls at the behest of the real estate industry, and um, there's currently a serious effort that has passed their House of Representatives but has to go through their Senate to remove that ban. And they asked me to come up and testify before a committee of the House of Representatives. Um, And on the opposing side was a sort of libertarian economist saying all the usual things about how rent control would destroy housing. And I 
pointed out that you know it was, it was in fact econ 101 that if what you did simply prevented people from cashing in on rising land values and did not um, cut into the amount necessary to actually profitably operate and maintain the housing, the, the part of being a landlord that is an actual you know, contribution of, uh, of operating and maintaining housing for people, that <clears throat> there would be, be no such effect. So um, those people that were um, particularly concerned about displacement issues and favorable toward the idea of rent control um, got the argument, and those people who were uh, opposed to it um, d- did not like the argument. I find it you know, just kind of depressing. It's these people, it's kind of a dream world they have. They say, oh, if everything is perfect and everything is functioning and there's a housing market which works, you wouldn't need rent control. And I agree, if the housing market worked, we wouldn't need it, but it is, you know, it's deeply broken, and it is for these very same reasons. And I, I'd say it is just in my mind, cruel to say, well, let's move closer to the perfect world by, uh, you know, making people suffer more who can't, uh, who are who are screwed over by the system. And that, I don't know if you, if if people tend to see it that way or not, but that's. Uh, I, well, I, well, I, I, I heard this phrase where you you know they say um, it's better to um, remove people's chains before you remove their crutches, right? So we do have a messed up system, <laughs> and people have had to adjust to that. You know, and you don't just knock out their support system from underneath them before you actually let them compete in something like what is idealized by libertarians when they say free markets, right? Yeah, I've noticed that the the free market ideologues always seem to zero in on the the regulatory systems and the subsidies that help uh Poor and low income, <clears throat> low income people first, on the grounds that they're the, that those for their from their point of view, I guess, are easy victories because those people have so little power. Rather than zeroing in on the things that help the wealthy first, it's it's funny, isn't it? <laughs> what if it was all the Ayn Rand they they read growing up? Uh, it's yeah, it's gross. Uh, yeah, so because the you know the, I mean again here's where we can go back to uh, Henry George who was very insightful about cities. I mean one of the wonderful things about Henry George is I think he was probably the first major American reformer who really cared about and liked cities and saw that they were enormously productive engines of creativity, and economic growth. And he also understood that that meant that the, the land in the cities um, became more valuable. Um, and, of course, um, if, if you look closely, also if we look closely at, um, you know, then producing housing near those jobs in the cities, for example, um, you have to build, in order to get more of it, you have to build at higher densities, and it becomes more expensive per unit to build at higher densities. So the, the increasing supply argument, yes, it's valuable to increase supply. We should try and get more buildable land onto the market. We should encourage more housing to be built. But especially in <clears throat> dense, already built-up areas, of which San Francisco is one, Berkeley um, is another. Um, the the supply can't push increased supply can't push the the rent levels back down to and home prices back down to what they used to be. So the result is that there's um, a continuing increase in that locational rent, that land rent. And the only way to deal with that is really, um, you know, again, try and protect people from displacement. And um, what would be fair would be to then tax those increasing land values and use them for the larger benefit of the community.
Yeah, the, the supply, the, the the increase of supply guys, I mean, they're absolutely correct in that, yes, supply and demand works. It will drive down prices. But if you imagine what is the end game there, if you imagine it grows and grows, you're still going to see landlords making a lot of money. And that is coming out of what people pay. And it's that's it's just is going to happen that way and i i, I guess the, the, unless you can you can find a way to either make it so it doesn't matter or actually you know capture this value and put it back there's still that's people's rent just being taken from them well in an era when you have as president donald trump somebody that didn't just make his money on real estate i mean a lot of it was his business just the way he does business which is repugnant um you know it's not only important that people have affordable rent right but if let's say in a hypothetical scenario everyone had affordable rent but the the increasing value of land was not being collected and shared back with everyone you'd still have this big problem with with inequality so everyone's basic needs might be met but you know those that own you know, the, the bulk of the really high-value land, oil deposits, other natural resources are still going to run the political show. And that's, in some ways, that's a much more disturbing problem. I, I wonder what your reaction to that is, Stephen. Um, well, absolutely. I, I think that when you have um, massive concentrations of private wealth, that's a threat to the continued existence of democracy. And if we look around at the, you know, the current situation in America today, where um, high on the priority list for the Republican Party is um, creating obstacles for um, people who tend to vote for Democrats to vote, um, and suppressing the vote to the extent that they can, um, all the while working on tax breaks for the wealthiest Americans, and even to the point of being willing to take health care away from millions of people in order to provide a big tax break, you, you can see the kind of um, resurgence of plutocracy, of an, an effort at rule by the wealthy that... Um, truthfully, at an earlier point in my life, I thought we were well past. You know, I thought that was part of the um, old socialist rhetoric from before the New Deal, the kind of thing that Stitt Wilson talked about <laughs> when he was <clears throat> you know, running for governor of California in 1910 and for mayor of Berkeley in 1911. And yet, here we are right back there. Yeah, and I guess the question is, how do you how how do you help people who you know in the, in the moment just don't have uh, support? I, I guess the the classic way you see all over, over places uh, depends heavily upon real estate booms and busts. It is basically setting aside below market rent units, uh, and and you're pushing for you know different solutions. Public housing is one of them, and the other one is a really I, I think a really cool concept we should be seeing a lot more of community land trusts. Uh, for people not familiar, could you explain what's going on with the uh, community land trusts uh, concept? Sure. So um, a lot of people are probably familiar with the idea of a conservation land trust, where uh, land is given to a land trust in perpetuity so that uh, they can protect it, uh, similar to the way that um, you know, a parkland might be protected, except not necessarily with all the kinds of public access. Um, the community land trusts do housing, and there are a number of variations, but the most frequent one is the community land trust owns the land under the housing, and then if they have single-family homes, they will sell the single-family homes at an affordable price to people who want to be homeowners. But since the land under the home is owned by the land trust, the homeowner basically, when they sell the house, they get their money back. They get um, 
additional money for improvements that they've made on the house. So, so they get what they've really earned during the time they've been homeowners, but they don't get a windfall profit from um, sale of the house if demand for living in that neighborhood has gone up. Now, the organization that I work with, the Bay Area Community Land Trust, is focused particularly on doing resident-controlled housing, limited equity co-ops, and related forms, because we have in in Berkeley um, not very many opportunities for affordable single-family homes. The the average single-family home in Berkeley is selling for a million dollars these days. But... Um, There are plenty of small apartment buildings that uh, would be good for cooperative ownership, and so we work with them to – we we work with people who want to collectively own the the property. I mean, a a co-op is – sort of like a condominium, except that it admits that the people collectively own the property, whereas in condominiums, people think that they're buying the equivalent, an apartment that's somehow the equivalent of a single-family home, and then are often shocked to discover that they actually need to collectively manage the building with their neighbors. So it's far better to start with calling it a cooperative so people know up front they are going to need to cooperate. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I, I guess I, I think it, it's really attractive as a way to, to sell it to people. It's kind of like it, it's a it's the kind of property they're looking for. They want a home, they want stability, and they can get it. They can get it. And what, and what do you have to give up? You know, nothing's free. They give up. They can't profit when they sell it. You know, they just get a home. They get stability, but you can't make a couple million dollars when land goes up. It sounds like that's that's fair. That's fair. It sounds fair to me. Does it sound fair to the average Berkeley person? I guess that's that's the question. There's a, there are a lot of people who who are interested. the The problem, of course, is to raise enough money to um, buy properties and, uh, and and convert them from properties that are just on the market and being rented for whatever the market will bear and convert them into, into co-ops. And, of course, it, it is also the case that not everybody wants to be in a co-op and be a homeowner. There are people, you know, especially students, for example, um, some who might want to simply rent and then move on at, at some point, uh, although the Berkeley Student Cooperative has been very successful despite the the high turnover among students. So I, I think that it's it's an attractive model, and I also think that it builds for the future. I mean, I've been working on affordable housing for 40 years now. I hate to say it, but that's the case. And, um, you know, it Housing is expensive. The amount of money available for subsidy is always um, far less than the demand. So you have to you have to build up a stock of affordable housing over a long period of time. And by building up, along with building up that stock of affordable housing, if you also are building up land trusts, if you're building up nonprofit housing developers then you're building up independent organizations that care about affordable housing and that will sort of keep fighting, keep lobbying the legislature and their city councils for um, more money to go into it. Our campaign, the Measure U1 campaign to tax the landlords, was largely paid for by... um, the, the nonprofit organizations that do affordable housing development because they realize that, you know, there's just plain not enough money, and if they're going to do uh, create more, then, they you know, we need to raise taxes. This was a fair kind of tax to uh, bring more resources into the affordable housing movement. So I think one of the things that we have to think about when we think about um, – 
how are we going to build support to move towards major valuable reforms like land value taxation, like building up a permanent stock of uh, long-term affordable housing. We have to think about what kinds of things can we do that also create organizations with staying power that will uh, keep the fight uh, going for decades because it's going to take a long time. I mean, back when Lyndon Johnson declared a war on poverty in 1965, I was in high school, and I actually thought that this country would eliminate poverty and racism over the next 10 years, maybe 20 at the outside. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. So it's, you know, we we have to assume that this is a long-term operation, and we have to come up with um, kind of, you know, what the equivalent of industrial unions were for the New Deal something that uh, carries the torch for the long term. And uh, I think that uh, land trusts and other forms of uh, socially responsible housing organizations are one form of that. That that speaks a lot to the concerns I have. You know, far be it for the you know uh, the perfect to be the enemy of good. But I, I guess the concerns I have of unintended consequences. Let's imagine it doesn't continue marching and it ends here. Uh, and if you do, uh, I guess here are the concerns I have, and let's just discuss it. This only looks at you know commercial landlords with five or more units, and it doesn't look at you know small landlords. It doesn't look at single family you know you know people who actually are not landlords and living the place yourself. I guess the concern I have, if this doesn't move more and more forward towards the perfect, is there's an incentive here for. You you would get less of all sorts of tenants, and you get more of just single family uh, and and small rental units. I, I guess the the big picture is this could, in the worst case, turn towards the you know Paulo Altuization or the Athertonization of Berkeley. Uh, do you think that's do you think that's a valid concern that one should worry about, or do you think that maybe uh, worrying about something that won't happen? Um, <clears throat> yeah. You know, you have to look at each particular community. So if if we were talking about a community out on the urban fringe where, um, you know, the, the cost of rents and home prices were um, getting, were pretty close to, you know, what they really needed to be in order to um, oper- operate and maintain them, um, that could be an issue. But in Berkeley, you're talking about a, a city where there are no large open spaces on which somebody's going to make a choice between building single-family homes or building apartment buildings. There are only um, infill spaces where people would build apartment buildings, or there are some randomly scattered vacant lots in the hills, very steep, where um, people could only build very expensive single-family homes. So you're not creating an incentive um, by having the the tax apply um, as it does to larger rental properties. You're not creating, in Berkeley's context, an incentive to build, uh, you know, to, to build lower densities. Well, I guess I worry you are working to preserve uh, low densities. In, in the college town here, Palo Alto, they say, oh, we're full. We have, we have no room to do. We're full of single-family house, households. In, in a way, you can think of Palo Alto as a big community land trust. And they got filled up, and they're all protected. But the problem is that you know, they have no incentive to let more people in. And I, I guess that is one worry, that once you're full, how do you let more people in if you're only uh, you know, the, the, the protected and the stabilized? Well, um, again, the, if you, the, the cities that, um, that support this kind of measure are also the kinds of cities that will support uh, rent stabilization. They're the cities that have a high proportion of tenants. And those are also the cities where most of the multifamily rental housing gets built, because um, not because 
Um, you know, people say, oh, if you pass rent control, it will discourage new construction. But in fact, it's the cities with rent control in the Bay Area that uh, that do more construction of rental housing, not because rent control or this tax would encourage it, but because tenants are not fearful of multifamily housing. They themselves often live in it, and they're not afraid that, oh, it'll bring more tenants in. They don't have that whole homeowner, um, single-family homeowner um, protectionism, which is a major problem in places like Palo Alto. So the fact is Berkeley currently has quite a building boom going on locally, and San Francisco has quite a building boom going on with very expensive new multifamily housing going up. Um, so the the tax itself won't have that effect. Now, a land trust potentially does, um, or you know, nonprofit ownership does potentially freeze some things in place. So, you know, <clears throat> eventually you have to you may have to be concerned about that. But as I drive along the major commercial street in. Uh, in this area, which is San Pablo Avenue, I see endless sites where people could build housing and that are even zoned to, to allow it. So the question becomes, why isn't the market building there? And the reality is where the market wants to build is those places like near campus in Berkeley or uh, near downtown San Francisco that will draw the highest rents. Now, I think that um, what the city of Palo Alto and neighboring Menlo Park do next to East Palo Alto is absolutely reprehensible because what they are doing is setting in motion forces that um, could easily lead to the displacement of a large part of that uh, relatively low-income, largely Hispanic and black and, uh, and, uh, and Samoan um, population that live in East Palo Alto. Yeah, I mean, displacement is bad, and then also as bad is, you know, pre-displacement of saying, hey, don't come here in the first place, there's no room for you. And I, I think, you know, you can't point a finger at one and not the other. They're, they're both terrible, you know, cruel policies. Well, absolutely. In fact, um, you know, there, there's a bridge between Palo Alto and East Palo Alto, if I recall correctly. Um and um, the citizens of Palo Alto refused to have that bridge upgraded and widened because they didn't want to make it easier for people to uh, get over the creek and, uh, and into Palo Alto from East Palo Alto. There's a level of uh, not only class bias but racism there that I, I don't know um, – I guess it's it's I guess it's easy to live with if you can afford to live in Palo Alto. They're they're not so racist if you're a minority uh, millionaire. They're they're fine with those guys. But uh, uh, so we're about to wrap up here, and uh, yeah. So I guess looking at the future, uh, you know, progressivism is always you know looking forward. Well, what are you optimistic for uh, future projects? I know the bio of of Jackson Stitt Wilson is one of them, uh, but in general, what what are you optimistic for? What are you looking forward to? Well, I'm very hopeful that some other cities in the Bay Area will pick up on the idea of increasing the gross receipts tax on residential landlords. Uh, if, for example, San Francisco were to pick that up, um, they could easily be bringing in uh, $50 million a year instead of Berkeley's $4 million a year. Um, if uh, San Jose were to to pick it up, you know, they were similar, similarly. And, you know, so there's also the cities on the, on the peninsula that tried to pass rent control. Um, there was um, the city of San Mateo and Burlingame, and um, maybe if they can't pass rent control, they could also, they could at least tax the windfall profits of the landlords and 
start down the path of providing more affordable housing in those communities that would be permanently affordable and outside the market. Well, there's always room for optimism, and, and, and let's hope. Uh, so, yeah, we've been in conversation with Steve Barton. Uh, he is working to make housing work in Berkeley, uh, even if it's at the cost of, of, of landlords' profits. Uh, thanks very much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Yeah, so this is the Henry George program. It's a presentation in case issue Stanford. You can find old episodes and more at the website seethecat.org. Case issue Stanford.